Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, before we uh, before we got on here, you were joking that uh, today's episode, if we wanted, we could probably go for uh, three hours, or at least I could. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was joking about that, and I'm laughing right now because I think I can sense your excitement from thousands and thousands <laughs> of miles away from New York. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that I'm extremely uh, excited about today's episode. And if we didn't have time constraints, we could probably go a long time. But I really think our uh, guest today is right in the sweet spot of some of the biggest themes that we've covered on this podcast in all the time that we've done it. Wait, so uh, who is it and why do you think that? Oh, so we're not we're we're just going to completely dispense with all the preamble and jump straight into the guest and just just get right into it. Well, I have a major preamble that I want to give um, before we get to the guest, but why don't you say who it is? Because I, I know that you you want to talk about him. Okay, I'm very excited. Our guest today is maybe the first uh, sort of legit celebrity that we've had on the Odd Lots podcast. His name is Hikaru Nakamura. He is one of the top chess players in the entire world. Right now, he's rated around uh, number seven. I believe he he was a prodigy. He earned his. Uh, he became a grandmaster at age ten, if Wikipedia is correct. Oh, he's <laughs> ma- he's giving me a face. I don't know if that's uh, completely accurate, but very young. And in addition to being a uh, chess phenom, he also does other stuff like trading options and at times uh, play poker competitively. So he's just a completely sweet spot odd lots guest here. All right. And obviously, we've had a lot of episodes about trading and investing. We've also had episodes in the past about chess and poker. So I can see how you would be very, very enthusiastic about this one. Here is my major preamble for you, Joe. I know absolutely nothing (laughs) about chess. In fact, I find chess extremely frustrating because whenever I play with my husband, he doesn't let me win ever. In fact, he uses that. What's that thing where you win in like two moves? Oh, That's so cringe. So cringe. The, uh, the, uh, the scholar's mate. Well, whatever it is, he's done it to me several times now and I <laughs> fall for it every single time. So everyone is just going to have to bear with me asking very, very basic questions about chess. But I actually read on Hikaru's Wikipedia page as well that he has an uncommon enthusiasm for chess and is known for being far more approachable than other players of his abilities. So I'm I'm sure he's going to humor me, right? Well, I think uh, that sounds like an ideal guest. So I say we should uh, just get started. Hikaru, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here, Joe. So 
you were making a face. I said something about when you achieved grandmaster status. When did you become a grandmaster? And uh, I think it said you got there faster than Bobby Fischer did. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so when you referred to being ten years old, that's when I became the youngest master. Oh, um, that's a slightly right. lower ranking. But um, at the time, at least, they had um, they kept that record in the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh. So when, when I was very young, like I, I was trying to get to that level, and so uh, that was important. But I became a grandmaster when I was fifteen years old. Uh, I was about a month and a half younger than Bobby Fischer, so that made me the youngest American grandmaster in the world uh, at the time. I guess that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> when did you – so you know, it's always sort of an interesting question with sort of young prodigies, phenoms. What was the moment early on where someone or you recognized that you were on a different level than other people who were learning at the same time? Uh, well, I think um, it, it's not so much that I was on a different level. There are there are a lot of uh, talented young kids who play chess, and um, I think it was just that I had this this uh, will will and this motivation with, within me to just keep trying to win every game all the time. And um, and when, when you start performing, even at like eleven or twelve years old, by beating strong grandmasters, um, it certainly shows that you have talent. And it's it's a matter of taking that talent and just keep keeping up and keep going forward with it and um and basically i would say from the time i was about 15 i i had a certain inclination that i might become a professional chess player but it wasn't until i was probably 19 or 20 that that actually came to fruition because i've had a lot of many uh, other interests in my life so there, there have been many other things that i've i've been doing with my time as well was chess something that you were naturally attracted to at a young age and you know if so what did you like about it well, I think uh, when, when you think about chess, you hear a lot of stories about these kids who are just great from the time that they first start playing. It's just they're, they're just amazing and they just win every game at the start. Um, whereas for me, that certainly wasn't the case. When I, when I started out playing uh, my, my first tournament, for example, I played four games and I lost every single one. And uh, the first year that I played chess, I did not have many great results, and my parents actually stopped me from playing for about six months, and hmm. it was only when I came back that, that uh, some, something clicked, and I, I just happened to start winning games, um, and then from there, it, it just kept, you know, I just kept going forward, but certainly... It's not something that I had a natural talent for, and actually with most things, um, I don't seem to have a, a natural talent, which in a way I think is a good thing because I think the harder you have to work for something, um, the, the better you become at it. And, and when, you hit the, when you hit the wall, you kind of you, you keep trying, you find a way to persevere, whereas there, there have been a lot of other kids who were much better than I was when they were young, but it's just it was a straightforward path, and so they just became really good really quickly, and then at a certain point they hit the wall and they didn't know how to, uh, how to go from there because they, they just couldn't, couldn't improve. And I basically had to learn how to improve from the very start. So I think it's, it's uh, for me at least, it's been very useful that I don't have a natural talent for a lot of things. Talk about that a little bit more breaking through, because I think that's something a lot of people experience in all kinds of endeavors where maybe they hit a wall for their talent or they can't figure out how to take it to the next level. What was it? I mean, anyone could say you have to work hard and concentrate, but even that often doesn't do it for a lot of people. So that process of figuring out your problem, solving it, and actually being able to make material gains in your improvement, what did that entail? Um, I mean, obviously, working hard, I mean, is, is a big part of it. But I think in general, it's just, you know, believing, believing in yourself, believing in the process, no matter what. Um 
I, I think there there were many times when I I stopped stopped improving and and one one good example was uh, when I was about 17 years old I'd become a really strong grandmaster I was top 100 in the world but I was stuck around 50th in the world and for a period of time I, I went to college I, I quit chess for for about seven to eight months. Um, and just by being away from it, when I came back, of course, I, I started working hard again, but I just learned how to enjoy it. And I think mm. it's, it's important that besides the hard work that you have to you have to enjoy it, you have to really be, be into it and be passionate about it, because otherwise, uh, otherwise, you're just not going to go anywhere. And um, I, th- I think for me, it was it was just learning how to enjoy it again and kind of like remembering what, what the whole point of it was in the first place, which is, you know, it's a game, but you, you want you want to have fun, you want to do well, but just enjoying enjoying everything about it. How did you actually turn professional and how does the business of being a professional chess player actually work? Like, how are you rewarded for playing games? Are there sponsorships? How do you make money? So, yeah, so chess, um, it's it's one of those fields where it's very much a meritocracy. So it's all based on your results. And going professional, it's not like uh, like a major sport, for example, where, you, you know, a team drafts you or something along those lines. Basically, uh, you, you just decide on your own to just uh, devote your life to playing chess. And um, and there, there are people in the world who would consider themselves professional chess players who are, who are not even grandmasters. So um, there, there, are, there are a lot of different ways of defining a professional. But um, I, I would say that probably the top 25, 30 players in the world make a very good living playing it, um, in large part because the, the major events with big sponsors um, they are invitational only. So you have maybe the top 10, top 15 players in the world in, in some order who are invited. And therefore, um, outside of that, it's very hard. Usually uh, you go from tournament to tournament, country to country, just trying to earn a living. And it's, it's very difficult, which is why there are a lot of people who I think when they're younger, uh, like in their early 20s, they, they try to play chess professionally. But at some point, if they don't break into that top 25, top 30 in the world, um, they, they eventually quit. And as far as the, the rankings go, every game, um, you, you gain points or you lose points based on what your ELO ranking is um, and whether the opponent you're playing is lower ranked or higher ranked than you. So let's seg here a little bit because in the intro we talked about how chess isn't your only pursuit. It's not your only passion. You're also into trading and options trading. In fact, you tweet. Um, I think you actually tweet a lot. I've seen more tweets, I think, about various options trades that you do than uh, chess, at least as far as I've noticed. Where did that come from? Um, I've I've always had an interest uh, in finance since I was very young. Um, when I was about fourteen or fifteen, my 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 mom bought me a couple of books that it was just about general general investing. Um, and I happened to read them, and I found it found it quite interesting, quite fascinating. Um, how how the markets work. Um, you know, in, investing in companies, trying trying to make money. Um, over the long term, and. So I kind of started with a very small account, um, and it remained that way for a long time. Uh, primarily, I was just uh, trading in equities. Um, but about a year and a half ago, I, start, I started getting into options. Uh, originally, it was because I started looking into um, uh, you know, writing calls against stock that I had purchased. And uh, from there, kind of, I started looking at more option strategies. And a few people I know, uh, I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, have been options traders professionally, and so they they've helped me along the way to to you know kind of f- figure out how how to learn strategies and go from there. 
This might be a slightly random question, but is there any direct relation between what you do when it comes to chess and uh, the way you trade options? I think one of the main things is uh, not just options, but markets in general, is um, that chess players tend to be very analytical. And I think that when you're looking at the markets, whether it's options, whether it's equities, um, no matter what the time frame, you have to be analytical. You have to look at it from a perspective of you know planning ahead, trying to figure out what can go right, what can go wrong, what are what are the various scenarios. Um, especially with options, you know, if you're if you're doing uh, you know say like a, a spread for example, or if you're doing uh, like you know ratios or, or just straight you know calls or puts, um, trying to figure out you know based on certain events what happens you know what's the breaking point assuming it you know you don't it doesn't go uh, you know straight up or straight down. Um, and going from there. So in general, it's just being very analytical and thinking ahead. That's that's the biggest correlation. There there are in fact a lot of people I know um, growing up who who actually have ended up in finance as well. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Now a lot of people would say that there's a fundamental difference between any sort of trading activity and chess. And of course, the sort of big gap is the role of chance and the role of psychology playing a much more outsized role in markets. And so you can calculate something perfectly in chess, and then you can execute it. And if it's a, if you calculate it correctly, there's nothing your opponent can do. Whereas all kinds of things can happen in markets. You could have the perfect strategy, and then something could come out of nowhere, or there could be a bubble or some sort of panic that totally destroys the calculations. You know, There's this element that doesn't exist uh, on the chessboard. How hard is it to shift thinking from one uh, realm to another? Uh, for me, it's not that hard. And, and actually, I, it brings up something else that I'm kind of curious about, which is I've, I've actually thought that uh, trading is a little bit closer to poker in some ways fr from that standpoint. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit curious to kind of try it out because originally I played uh, I played some poker and then I, then, then I eventually got into trading. So it's kind of like because I was a strong chess mm. player, I couldn't handle the chance element in poker, whereas I seem to handle handle the chance and the risk management much better in trading. So I'm kind of curious to say, like, go from this and then play some poker again soon and see if uh, see if it changes because that is a very big difference. That that is uh, uh, the biggest difference is that in chess, if you play well, um, I mean, I would say probably 95% of the time something good will happen. You might not win the game if your opponent plays very well, but you aren't going to lose if you make, say, 40 good moves in a row. And so, therefore, that, that is a big difference. But for me, um, I've, I find that I, I don't have that much difficulty switching and making uh, just straightforward decisions. Um, for me, it seems much more logical, actually, with trading than it does with chess in a way. Yeah, so I have to say um, poker is probably the analogy that we hear the most when it comes to trading. Uh, and you said you played a little bit of poker in the past. Did you find it more difficult than chess? Or can you kind of walk us through what your performance was like on that front? Yeah, I, f I found uh, poker quite difficult. And it's for the exact reason that you would think uh, that, that trading should be difficult compared to chess, which is that um, I felt like I was making a lot of the right decisions more often than not, but the results were, were not right. I would end up, you know, uh, I mean, the best example is when I played the, the World Series of Poker, the, the main event in 2011. And um, in that event, I played tight, I played normal, um, normal solid poker. And then at the end of the second day, uh, and probably like the last 20 minutes, I ended up with this hand where I had kings and the, the other guy had a pair of eights. And uh, on the flop, there was an eight and and I busted out that way, despite really not doing anything, anything wrong at all. Um, 
And that's just one example. But I, I think that at the time I found it very hard because, again, compared to chess, uh, th there is that luck. You can make all the right decisions, but then somehow you you lose. So you're out of the tournament, or you you know you, you bust in, in the cash game. And it's like it's a very strange feeling um, from that standpoint. But for for me, I, I don't know what the difference is, but I have found with trading, it's much easier for me than 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 it was with poker. But of course, I haven't played poker seriously in a few years, so maybe it would be a an interesting experience experiment to go back to, to playing some poker now just to see if see if because I have this experience with trading whether it's a little bit different. Let's take a break now for a word from our sponsor. But first, we want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg that's really cool. It's called Lens and it is a iOS app and a Google Chrome extension and it enables you to scan any news story on any website and instantly look up relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources, all related to the companies and people you are actually reading about online. So pretty cool. Right. So starting right now with the app or with the Chrome extension, let's say you're on the web and you go to the New York Times and you read an article about Facebook, you can instantly pull up all of uh, Bloomberg's data about Facebook, pull up relevant articles. It's basically a way to take the complete power of Bloomberg, the terminal, the database, and have it overlay your entire consumption of uh, news around the world and around the web. Right. And you can learn more about it at Bloomberg.com forward slash lens. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. And we're back with Hikaru Nakamura, one of the top chess players in the entire world, and therefore obviously also one of the top players in the U.S. We're also talking about his uh, experience having played poker, uh, his experience in options trading. Uh, Hikaru, the obvious sort of follow-up is that all of these areas, whether it's poker, trading, chess, the, the nature of active participation has changed dramatically due to the use of computers, artificial technology. The top, there was probably a point where no one imagined that the top chess computers could compete with the top humans. Now that question has been changed. Obviously, computers have completely changed the way markets trade or you know, changed the balance of um, how humans interact with it. Computers are getting better and better all the time at uh, poker as well. Let's talk about this a little bit. In chess, how have uh, computers, in your view, changed the game? How have they changed your preparation? How do you see them having influenced it? Uh, basically, I think the main thing that's changed with computers um, is that at this point in time, because they've become so strong, you just automatically assume that they're right. So, for example, if you put a certain chess position and you have one of the computer engines analyzing it, you just trust the evaluation, what it says. You know, white's white's better, white's winning, or, or the position is completely even. You trust it without without a second thought. Whereas in in the early days, um, say in the 90s, for example, computers could come up with evaluations that were wrong, and a human would still be right. A human would know the understand the position better. Whereas now, um, that's not the case. You just It's just flat out, the computer's right, you're wrong, you trust what it says, period, end of story. And so because of that, um, one of the main things that, that has changed is 
There are a lot of positions which uh, in the past you would have thought one side, the way they're playing is very unusual, it's dubious, it's not quite correct, it's not correct play. And because of computers, if you see a position now where there's some strange moves, the computer says it's completely fine and you just, you believe that. It's not, it's not like before, whereas if I played some position against, say, Kasparov, for example, he would just, you know, he would just go, uh, that's not good. You don't know what you're doing. You're a complete potser. Whereas now, because of the computer, uh, he couldn't really say that because the computer just, it understands chess so, so much better. And, and basically the main thing is that now almost any position in the game of chess if you find the right moves, it's probably okay. Unless you're just completely losing, there always are going to be defensive resources. Hmm. So Joe and I have talked about this a number of times now, but in markets, you know, the rise of machines as well as passive investing has, I think it's fair to say, given way to a sense or maybe an existential crisis for fund managers. Like there's just a sense that you can never beat the market or the machines now. Um, so when it comes to chess and computers. Does the rise of computers just make playing chess less fun? Like knowing that a computer is all powerful and always has the right decision, does that make the game less enjoyable for you? It does at times. I think uh, another another big uh, thing that's happened in chess is you have these huge databases with millions and millions of games as well. So it's not just the computer analysis. It's also the fact that you have databases, which means that probably the first like 10 to 15 moves of every single game, both sides are going to know exactly what they're doing, which means that it's getting deeper and deeper where you reach a new position where it's just the human is just, you know, like I'm playing against someone else. It's, it's become deeper and deeper in the game. That makes it uh, quite a bit less fun at times because, uh, because it's just like you, you don't play at the start. You, you're just repeating whatever the computer says. And then uh, somewhere in the early middle game, somewhere around like the 20th move, 15th, 15 to 20th uh, move in the game, you're, you're starting to play the game. Whereas in the past, it might have been like the fifth move or the 10th move. So it's, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And that, that does take quite a bit of the, the fun out of it because uh, it makes it a lot harder to win. But at the same time, um, it's also a challenge and it's, it's fun to, to try and out-prepare your opponents, to try and, try and uh, just you know, outsmart them and, and, and beat them. So it, it, it cuts both ways. So just to clarify, what you're saying is you'll play games with someone and the first 15 moves or more will be identical to numerous games that have been played mm -hmm. in the past. Pro probably only, to thousands of games. And yeah. only deeper than that will one of you have played a new move that hadn't been played mm -hmm. before. Exactly. So in theory, you know, as, as a trader, in theory, you shouldn't be able to make money trading. I mean, there's this whole school of thought, essentially efficient markets, that someone trying to do active stock selection or active uh, any sort of active trading shouldn't really be doable, that no one has any more information or insight or anything, and that if you do make money over a period of time, that it might be luck, um, something like that. And with computers being able to research and analyze uh, you know, probabilities so aggressively, in theory, it should be even harder than it has been in the past to exploit inefficiencies. Why, why is that an endeavor that you think you can make money on? Um, well, I mean, to be be fair, I do a mix. So it's not just uh, I'm not 100 percent trading. I sure. also do uh, do passive investing. But in the as trading well, component, yes. Why do you feel like it's an area that is worth your time and worth trying to beat the system? 
Uh, I mean, I, I, I enjoy a challenge. I mean, to, to be frank, I, I enjoy a challenge and it's quite difficult. It takes a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of work. And, uh, e even then you still aren't always going to be right. Um, I mean, I wasn't right this morning on Caterpillar, for example, but, um, but, it, but in general, uh, you know, I, th I think um, I, I really I really enjoy the process. So maybe over the long run, it's not going to pan out. But but I enjoy the process and I've been successful uh, in, in the past year. Wait, what was your caterpillar so. trade? <laughs> oh, uh, I, I was for some reason I, I was expecting uh, expecting them to go down. I, I did a, a put spread on them. I was expecting uh, because of the commodity prices for them to not uh, not report and the stock the earnings yeah. and the stock for what it's worth is up about six and a half percent I know well, as you, <laughs> right, I'm, I'm letting our viewers know I know yeah. you uh, you probably are feeling the pain of that trade today but I just want to you know but another thing also uh, you know like there's there's another trade for example which I am not doing well on which is Tesla but uh, I think uh, one thing that that I also enjoy is because I'm just a you know a retail uh, in investor is that uh, through traveling around a lot I get to have a different perspective on certain things. You know, it's like um, everyone says Tesla is, uh, is overvalued right now, and I, I think think it is. But for example, I was in Italy last week, and I was in southern Italy, no less, and I was really surprised to see that on, on the weekend downtown, there was a, there was some, some sort of exhibition. It was for electric cars. And I think that when you see things like that, it also, it also it changes the perspective a little bit. You don't have the standard standard view like I would if I'm just here when I actually get out and I see certain things um, like that or unfortunately things like in retail where you go to malls and you mm. see uh, nobody see there nobody there I mean it, I, I think I, I also find that to be uh, one of the advantages as well of just being being who I am traveling around a lot I, I get a lot of different perspectives and I think that does help me with trading Tracy and I were in uh, Hong Kong a uh, little over a year ago and I remember being pretty stunned by how many Teslas were on the road so I know what you mean in terms of getting out and being uh, you know having feeling like you have a new piece of information that you didn't have before yeah I mean because I, I think it's like uh, I've traveled around the US a lot but I mean if you go to somewhere in the middle of the country I mean one place where I've spent a fair amount of time would be St. Louis I mean you don't see Teslas I don't think I've seen a single Tesla when I've been out there. If I've seen Teslas, you know, I'll see them in New York or San Francisco or Florida, but never in the middle of the country, despite traveling around a lot. So it's, I think, uh, it's it's quite nice to have that extra perspective, that extra viewpoint for um, for for making possible trades. Yeah, I think research and data is clearly uh, of growing importance for trading and investing. And Joe and I, we've talked about this on the show before as well, but this idea that we have new sources of proprietary data now, like, you know, you have hedge funds that have access to satellite data that shows which factories in China are manufacturing a lot. And that kind of throws up some questions about data inequality in the market. I'm just wondering, when it comes to chess, you mentioned the idea that, you know, you have these big databases that show all the moves in thousands and thousands of various games of chess. Do certain people have better databases or mm. better computational power when it comes to that? Uh, in terms of databases, no. In terms of uh, computational power, certainly there there is a difference because some people will spend some extra money and go out and buy supercomputers or um, just have clusters of various computers altogether. Um, and, I, and I think when I say that, not I would say not all the top players have that. So there there are some uh, computational advantages uh, if if you uh, you know spend the money. 
obviously this whole debate about humans versus computers or computers augmenting the ability of humans is a, has much broader macro implications for the economy. This is an endless source of debate about whether humans will have any jobs to do or whether there will be a few people with jobs programming computers and the rest of us will be unemployed and living on a drip of Soylent and a basic income check <laughs> or something like that. I'm curious, you know, you whether through the chess experience, because I think in chess there's two things. There's man versus computer chess, but also chess or computers, as you've said, aiding your play, whether you have some perspective on where you see sort of the future of work and the future of human ingenuity. Well, the first thing that, I, that I'm, I'm going to say is actually on chess still, one of the really weird things is that when humans play against humans, most games end in a draw. It's something like 65-70% of games end in a draw. But when you have computer programs playing against each other, there are a lot less draws. Most of the games are decisive, which should not make any sense whatsoever because you figure the computers, again, what is the difference between one computer and another computer? Um, and I'm, I'm not a computer guy, so I can't really explain it, but it's kind of amazing when you think about it that like when two computers that should be the same, same computational power and ability, they play one computer wins, which I think bodes very well for the future of chess um, in general. But uh, as, as far as the, the world, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say because... Um, I actually uh, was was down in Florida recently, um, and there's this this IT company which builds um, builds various platforms through AI um, and using uh, bit bitchain technology. And uh, certainly, jobs are going to disappear with AI going forward. But at the same time, you also need people to train and and build build these platforms and and, and everything. And uh, like when I was in Florida, there there were a lot a lot of kids coming straight out of college who were doing this. So. I think jobs are certainly going to disappear. I don't know if it's uh, the end of the world, but I mean, I think going forward, there will probably have to be some sort of a, a shift in terms of uh, job, job skills and, and, and all that, because uh, certain jobs, like I think being a mechanic, for example, um, are just going to simply vanish over the next 10 to 15 years. It's really odd that games played between computers are more decisive than games played between humans. But on some level, I guess if you're a chess spectator, that would be more desirable, right? Like, would you ever get a situation where we all go to chess tournaments and we just watch one robot play another robot? Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> if that happens, I'm not going to be playing chess. I better uh, better just uh, do something else all the time. Um but but yeah, I think you know that that that's actually a big big problem with chess, for example, is because the the databases have become so so good, and the players have also just become so good through learning from the computers. Uh, the, the margin of difference is so small that most games do end in draws, and for spectators, that's not exciting at all. Um, so there there have to be some changes in chess, and I think it's a it's if you look at it, that's you know a microcosm of the the bigger picture as well. Do you ever worry that like so there's one at one point when people thought that chess or that computers would never be able to compete with humans, there was obviously this view that there was something in chess or there's something in poker or any of these other games that required an intuitive creative element that could never be programmed into the computer, and then of course. Computers don't have any creativity or intuition, but they do have raw cal calculation power. And it turns out that that's enough to make them really good at chess. Do you ever worry there's like something unromantic about it in the sense that it turns out that sort of intuition and creativity and these sort of skills that we think of as innately human 
uh, maybe aren't worth very much? Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit depressing. You know, for me, actually, like Kasparov lost a deep blue. It was already, I think, probably 20 years ago now. So right. I think that was 96, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I remember being there. And, like, at that point, like, we had started to accept the computers were better. And, like, for me, it was it was so bizarre. Um, actually, another, speaking of another game was Go, where right. uh, it was, it's, you know, it's more difficult than chess. You can't compute it. And then, then like you had this computer just destroy this, this world champion, and it was just like this whole weird flashback to to what happened like twenty years ago. Um, so I, I think, in a way, it's sad. But um, if we can still learn from computers and uh, become better at various skills, then I, I don't think it's all all for naught. I have one question, which is: if you are a human, what's your uh, <laughs> what's your number one? tip for someone with a very basic knowledge of chess who is very tired of constantly losing just pick up a book or go online and find some uh some 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 quick tactics like some tactics in the first like five moves of the game some basic tactical sequences just tricks play for tricks all right i have two (laughs) i have two final questions uh the first one's very closely related to tracy's uh, I have a 13-month-old daughter, and I want her to be the next uh, Hikaru Nakamura, of course. What's the? F- how would you? You know, I'm not just looking for technical tricks, but I want to turn her into a great chess player one day, if she wants to be. What's the best way to uh, start training her? Uh, well, nowadays it's it's so easy. Um, I mean, just uh, going online and on any of the various chess sites, just just studying tactile sequences um, or just looking at various games. I mean, there, there's so much information out there that it's not hard to get started um, by by any means. Uh, as I said before, there are a few few different chess sites like chess.com, I think is probably the main one where you can just go get a free account and uh, look at games or do some tactics. And, and that's the easiest way to get started. All right. I'll, I'll sit her in front of the computer today <laughs> and issue but, her but, you know, and log her in with the chess.com account. Buy your one-year-old a book. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, though, that's another thing is like when I became Grandmaster at 15, that was a big deal. Mm. That, that was quite young at the time. But nowadays there are, there are kids who are becoming Grandmasters at uh, 12 or 13. So it, it just keeps getting younger and younger. And, uh, and, and again, who knows where that's going to lead as well. All right, I have one other question. So I used to be – I'm not very good at chess, but I used to play a lot when I was in college. And, and that was uh, – I graduated in 2002, so you are probably like uh, early teens at that point. And my friends and I who played, we were aware of you, so that was very exciting because we knew about this young guy, Hikaru Nakamura, who's becoming one of the best in the world. And I, yesterday I texted a friend and I said, oh, we have Nakamura on the uh, podcast. And he was really excited. But he wants to know, do you have a prediction for the uh, 2018 Chess Olympiad? Because I know the U.S. won in 2016, which is pretty extraordinary. That was in uh, Baku and Azerbaijan. How is it looking for 2018? Uh, we, we should be the favorites. Uh I mean, the one thing I will say is it felt way too easy winning this last time in, in Azerbaijan. So there's there's some kind of uh, this there's this weird feeling that like somehow if we do win, it's not going to be as easy as it was. So I, I think we're we're probably the favorites, but uh, it's us or Russia. I would say one of the two. One of one sort of, of us the two. classic yeah. the classic countries in the game. Exactly. All right, Hikaru Nakamura, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you, and uh, thanks for coming on the Odd Lots podcast. Sure, no problem. So, Tracy, I, I'm not going to lie. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it totally lived up to the hype. 
as uh, as I said at the end, I've been uh, following Hikaru's. I've been aware of Hikaru's career for like 15 years now, and so it's pretty thrilling to uh, get to chat with him. You know, I'm just reading the Wikipedia entry again, <laughs> and it says it says that he is sometimes nicknamed the H bomb because of his explosive style of playing. Do you know what that means? Uh, I imagine it's uh, aggressively aggressively tactical and stuff but he's still here real quickly Hikaru what uh what is that where's that nickname come from yeah it's it's just uh it's just being a very aggressive player trying to win every game at all costs uh, from from when I was a bit younger well I'm glad uh, we got to get an answer to that no and I really sort of appreciated uh the perspective I mean you know we sort of talk about this eternal sort of epic battle of humans versus computers and robots and we sort of act like it's uh like there's this zero sum element and one is going to win out. But I like this idea that, yeah, there is that. But then there's also this way in which computers make humans way better at doing human tasks, like being able to play a much more advanced game of chess or being able to learn chess at a much uh, earlier age. And now there are all these young grandmasters. So kind of give me a optimistic, uh, kind of optimistic on that. Really? I, I don't know. So, I mean, I, I just kind of see like chess in some respects is kind of at the forefront of the man versus machine argument. Right. And right. like, yes, yes, people can use computers to augment their own performance. But ultimately, when humans are pitted against computers, the computers are the ones that win out. And I mean, just going back to my experience, I get really frustrated with the game because I never, ever win. And so I wonder if you're a human constantly competing against a machine, if eventually you just give up. You know, you should really <laughs> no, buy, no more buy a book. or I'm sure you're in, uh, that you could find uh, some local grandmasters to uh, teach you, probably. You know, yeah. to, you know, actually try to improve at the game. <laughs> yes. OK, I, I will try. Maybe. And I will say one other thing, as frustrating as it, it might be to lose every game, there's nothing more boring than winning every game. So you're actually, I think you're getting on the, uh, you're you're on the right side of the equation. Is that how the computers feel? You think they're yeah. like, oh my God, th- I've just won another game. I, they probably are. Uh, <laughs> on that note, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow Hikaru on Twitter at GM Hikaru, where you can see all of his uh, latest, I don't know about all of them, but his chess exploits and many of his uh, options trades, including a recent trade on Yum China that apparently uh, worked out pretty well. So uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.